I didn't know there was going to be a possibility of a screen. I would have put up a page of my manuscript which, where the handwriting is so bad that even the CIA wouldn't understand it. And I have to apologize because um, I'm a writer, so I have to read what I say and think. In Sri Lanka, the great dancer Chitrasena created and performed remarkable regional works throughout his life. He was essential in reviving and celebrating the vernacular in dance. When he died in Colombo, 700 drummers played at his funeral. I asked him once what had made him a dancer, and he said it was when he read the autobiography of Isadora Duncan. It was a book by a dancer in Europe that made him a dancer in Sri Lanka. I'd like to talk a bit today about such mongrel influences, especially in how they have shaped me and my work. As a writer, I'm a mongrel of place, of race, of time, of cultures, of languages, and also numerous genres. I was born in Sri Lanka where I lived till I was 11 and where I hardly ever read a book. But I would hear stories around me constantly at the dinner table, tall stories, lies, excuses, gossip about affairs, and how one uncle married badly six times. So the stories I received came from an oral tradition. This was the family album. When I wrote about them later in later life in running the family, I had to tune into those voices, that oral tradition, where I was told a well-told lie was worth a thousand facts. I went to school in England, and that was where I began to read, slipping into an imaginary life. The book rested on her lap like a doorway, D.H. Lawrence writes in The Rainbow. But I hated the realities of the English private school, its structures and rules, and I behaved, I suppose, anarchically against them, distrusting the voice of power and all the rhetoric that came with it. As for the idea of the writing life, I was not too keen. On the back of one Penguin paperback, I read that the author Nigel Balchin wrote his first novel on his honeymoon. I preferred the idea of being a doctor or a thief. I came to Canada when I was 18 and began to write and got involved with small presses. Being involved with small presses allowed me to find, allowed me time to find my own voice. But even then, when I was beginning to write, I was involved with theater and film and music. Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, The Coasters, the stories of Damon Runyon, all of them had created a bizarre portrait of North America before I ever got there. Nowadays, I try to imagine what kind of country I expected America to be then, a place where Tom Waits might be president, perhaps. In fact, as a writer, I'm more likely to be influenced by other genres than writing. I certainly have my literary heroes, although I do not consciously learn from them. But I know I have been influenced by Louis Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven recordings, and the flock of voices in a Pat Waller song, or the structures and echoes in Diego Rivera's frescoes that I've seen in Detroit or Mexico City. I've been influenced by temple art in Sri Lanka more than by any postmodernist writer. And I remember walking through Hadrian's villa with an architect who spoke of the poetics of the villa, and I know our conversation in that location probably influenced the structure of the English patient. If a book inspires a man to become a dancer, a writer can be altered by a geographical site, 
or the great swerving jazz of potato head blues. We learn from everything. We learn from everywhere. The radical form and beauty of Kurt Schwitter's collages, the use of raw materials in Robert Rauschenberg's work. I've been influenced by, or to put it bluntly, plundered them all. And yet, though I have lived in the West now most of my life, I still discover that I follow or guess at an aesthetics that comes from the East. Donald Ritchie, the great American who has lived in Japan for over 70 years, writing about the difference between West and East says, in the conventions of a Western discourse, order, logical progression, symmetry, impose upon the subject an aspect that does not belong to it. Eastern aesthetics suggests that ordered structure contrives, that logical exposition falsifies, and that linear consecutive argument eventually limits. Most likely to succeed in defining Japanese aesthetics is a net of associations composed of listings or jottings connected intuitively that fills in the background and so renders the subject visible. Hence the Japanese use of juxtaposition, assembling, and bricolage. Many Japanese writers, Richie writes, prize a quality of indecision in the structure of their work. And something too logical, too symmetrical, is successfully avoided when writers in the Japanese phrase simply follow the brush itself. I cannot tell you what comfort I had in reading those lines by Donald Ritchie. It echoed and it justified how I thought and how I write. I believe in this informal, intimate, and possibly haphazard following of the brush. For me, that is what art is, what poetry is, the place furthest away from rhetoric. We can find that careful intimacy in a troubadour poem translated by W.S. Merwin. We find it in a small gesture Hannah Shagula makes in a Fassbinder film. These are opposed to the confident public voices that surround us all the time. William Merwin spoke yesterday about the necessary recognition of ignorance. What we heard yesterday from him was, in fact, the lesson of the master. We're lucky to live in a time of Mongol influences, translations from all over the world surround us. Never again will a single story be told as though it were the only one, John Berger writes. A person grows up in Colombo or Pakistan and their true mentor or touchstone could be Italo Calvino or C.D. Wright or a book by Isadora Duncan. With mongrelism, we are allowed multiple perspectives. We know it is only the pure products of America who go crazy. Following the brush means a tentative, uncertain reconnaissance. And sometimes you get lost or the work is unfinished. The link between artist and reader is tenuous. We need this amateur relationship to do something for the love of the craft and the love of the sharing, something that is always one step away from the public world. In America, they do not want artists to have a career, James Baldwin wrote. They want them to have a success. Compare that insistence to what is a more preferable remark by the writer Ivo Andrik, who in 1917 said, poets, unlike other people, are loyal only in misfortune, and they abandon those who are doing well. Thank you.